both gentlemen and yeoman bold, or whatever you are. To hear a stately story told, attention now prepare. Is a tale of Robin Hood that I to yon will tell, which being rightly understood, I know will please you well. This Robin, so much talked on, was once a man of fame, entitled Earl of Huntington, Lord Robin Hood by name. In courtship and magnificence, his carriage won him praise, and greater favour with his prince than any in his days. So begins the life and death of Robin Hood, the renowned outlaw, and the famous exploits performed by him and Little John. A chapbook, printed in Glasgow, Scotland, somewhere between 1840 and 1850. It tells the story, in flowery verse, of one of the UK's most famous rebels. A man who cheated the system and stole from the wealthy, not for his own gain, but for the benefit of the poor. Rebels come in many flavours. Cultures around the world have their own examples of rebellious characters embedded within their folk tales. Some help others, some help themselves. Some you would love to meet, others you would do well to avoid. But what exactly is the meaning behind our rebellious folk characters? What purpose do their stories hold, and what do they tell us about ourselves? I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Joining me today on the Folklore Podcast and helping me to answer these questions is the wonderful Icy Sedgwick. If you have a social media presence, you listen to Folklore Podcasts, or you're a long-time listener to this show, you'll know Icy. She's the host of the podcast Fabulous Folklore, a blogger and author writing both about folklore and in the realms of fantasy fiction, and something of an expert on haunted houses. And she's probably the best goth I know. Icy is also the author of a new book all about folkloric rebels, commissioned this year by Dorling Kindersley Publishers. So, let's get rebellious. Welcome back on the podcast, Icy Sedgwick. Oh, hello. It's, it's almost like we only just spoke a few days ago. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, strange. If you haven't listened to Icy's episode of Fabulous Folklore with myself and Dr. Elith Bader discussing our new book, The Folklore of Wales, Colon Ghosts, then uh, do go and listen to that after you've listened to Icy and I chat today, because why not? And if you haven't listened to the rest of Icy's podcasts, you could do that too while you're there. That would be a good plan too. Well, well, why are you here? You've written a book. I know I have, haven't I? And it's an incredibly neon-coloured one as well. It is very neon, but it's got black sprayed edges and it's beautifully designed and lovely. It really is. DK did an absolutely smashing job with it. They did. For those for those that don't know Dorling Kindersley as a publisher, they, they produce a number of different sorts of books, kind of encyclopedic books, books, information, non-fiction books for children and for adults. Um, but their books are always beautifully produced and they have the most amazing artwork. And I'm sure we'll discuss this as we go along as well. The artwork in yours is certainly no exception to those rules either. So your book is called Rebel Folklore. So today we are going to talk all about, as well as your book, rebels in folklore uh, and all of the sort of different 
characters that maybe come under that term. And I was thinking about this and thinking, do you know what this when you stop and think about it, this is really broad. And and actually the, the number of characters in your book and the different stories about them really illustrates that point. Because when, when you think about rebels in popular culture, you know, if you look at movies and you look at Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean, Marlon Brando, those sorts of characters. When I was making my notes, I put Bart Simpson in there for cartoons because, you know, <laughs> that's that's a natural rebel character. So what are rebels in this sense? They're, they're characters who play the system. They go against the state control, if you like, and, and, and kind of buck those ideas. But when you talk about rebels in folklore, what are you talking about then? How, how do the characters in folklore come under the term of rebel? Because it's quite different in some respects, isn't it? It is. And I think one of the best words that we were using kind of as a guideline when I was working on it with my editor was the word ambiguous. So mm. in a lot of cases, they're characters who none of them you could consider like a hundred percent like good in that sort of like i guess lawful good D D kind of alignment <laughs> the selkies are possibly the closest to that and none of them also are wholly bad so even the ones who might maim people or in other words in some kind of ways punish people who like transgress into their domain there's always a reason for them doing what they're doing so none of them are kind of malicious out of spite all of the ones who are i guess if you look at someone like baba yaga is a good example mm. she's never sort of like punitive in a lot of ways it's like you wouldn't want to cross her but at the same time if you actually follow her rules then she's actually quite benevolent in a way and and it was that level of ambiguity that made them rebels so they're kind of they're not like the I'm trying to think of a good example, but they're not like the fairy godmother type character who's just going to hand stuff out left, right and centre. Like there's a degree of, as I say, ambiguity, but they're very much the sit in that grey space um, where it kind of, the way that you encounter them um, depends on how you've approached them. And I guess the reason why we went for the idea of, of rebels is because of the fact that in a lot of cases they don't really necessarily fit alongside other folklore characters who can then be categorised as good or bad? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you you open the, the book's divided into different uh, parts of the world, uh, and you open with Europe, and in fact, you you open here in England in the UK with Robin Hood, a very well known character and an obvious rebel in some mm. senses. Um, but but yes, there is still that ambiguity, isn't there? Because depending on which side of the fence you're on, then he's a thief, he's a robber. This is this is somebody who is you know setting out deliberately to break the law, but then at the same time, he's doing it in order to reward the people who live in poverty because, in his opinion, the state has too much, and and I suppose. You can still look at certain elements of society today and still see those same ideas. I mean, twas ever thus and probably ever will be, I think. So so there is that kind of mix, isn't there? But then you go straight from Robin Hood into 
Jenny Greenteeth as a character who's who's very very different so I guess that's two examples that really do juxtapose these ideas isn't it yeah and I think it's the fact that obviously with Jenny Greenteeth she's one of those characters who because she falls into like that cautionary tale end of the spectrum like you wouldn't consider her to be good in any sort of sense of the word but obeying the rules of her space as it were as in obviously being aware of the, the environments where you might encounter her or otherwise known as duckweed then that would then benefit you so in some ways it's kind of creating a set of spaces which have a particular set of rules which sometimes run counter to the rules of our society so i guess in some ways like there's a sense i think in certain parts of the west where we tend to think that like the natural environment is there for us to just sort of use and abuse as capitalism sees fit whereas a lot of these figures and the the forest protectors are more obvious in that regard are obviously say well no actually there's a completely different set of rules for this space and i think that's where jenny greenteth is kind of like well there's a different set of rules for my space um you know you obey you, you disobey them essentially at your peril and i think that the the very idea of obviously sort of having someone like that pitted against Robin Hood, I think was just to kind of show that this level of ambiguity kind of like spirals outwards. And it's a way of basically saying that to me anyway, one thing I hate is this focus that people have on things being either or. And mm. obviously, as you know yourself, looking at folklore, a lot of the time things sit in that both and and space. So, you know, something can like Jenny Greenteeth can be powerless to children and she can prevent them from drowning so it's you know it doesn't have to be that like robin hood is a criminal but he also feeds the poor so it's he's both and and i think that's where these these characters really get us to think about that yeah i mean folklore is far from binary in yeah. any sense and and you know we've spoken many times before about how fluid the ideas of folklore are it's probably worth just summing up you know robin hood is is a very kind of internationally known character jenny Greenteeth in some places perhaps not so much um and i do want to use that to segue into something else so it's probably worth just briefly telling the story of jenny Greenteeth and how that story, in fact, relates to uh, lots of similar characters all over the place, doesn't it? Jenny Greenteeth's a really interesting one because in a lot of the sources I looked at, they were placing her as this kind of witch or monster who lives in waterways, often ponds, sometimes canals. Well, I suppose it would be like natural canals at the time. And the name is also kind of synonymous with duckweed, which from a distance can just look like grass. So the idea being if you step on it, obviously you may find, you know, you get a bit wet. And the idea was that if children in particular or generally vulnerable people went too near the water, this witch would catch you and generally eat you. And um, and yeah, I guess in some ways it then becomes like a metaphor for being swallowed by, you know, these dangerous waterways. It was really interesting, though, because I remember mentioning her on Twitter once and somebody did actually say, oh, my God, my gran used to tell me stories about that. And I found it really interesting that she's not just this figure who like was knocking around in 19th century folklore. Like she continues to be used in some shape or form, um, sort of actually well into the 21st century in some way. So she's basically one of those creatures where it's like if you ever saw like the oh, what's it called? The Dark and Lonely Water public information from from the 70s like 
Jenny Greenteeth would be one of the hazards that Donald Pleasance would be worried about warning you about. <laughs> and, and there are similar characters to Jenny, aren't there, in different areas of, of this country, for example, and and in other cultures as well, who essentially serve the same purpose. Yeah. And, and I guess in a time when people wouldn't necessarily like have learned to swim as a as a normal thing because that's the thing you always forget like you know babies can generally swim and then at some point humans forget how and have to relearn how Mm. to swim so you do think you know in earlier times you know water safety may not have necessarily been most people's priority Mm. and we find the same thing in in other aspects of of folklore motifs as well don't i suppose so you know all of the the legends of bottomless pools that they're, they're serving the same purpose essentially they're cautionary tales you know, keep away from these areas because they're dangerous mm-hmm. um and, and we find these cautionary tales all through folklore or all over the world so and you have other examples there for of kind of rebellious characters like this characters who you might describe as rebels but who are there to teach us mortals in the boring old real world these sorts of lessons valuable life lessons yeah i mean another one that springs to mind um she's kind of a cautionary tale slash forest protector so again demonstrates how even within the book the categories aren't fixed and that would be uh, mama paduri from romania in particular with the slavic region and she's sometimes in some stories she's portrayed as like a witch who lives in the woods and again um you know will uh predate upon children in particular that might get lost in some of the earlier stories she would actually help children who were lost out of the forest and instead she would sort of attack um people who came into the forest and took too much so in some kind of way she becomes a cautionary tale obviously like to stick to the path but she also becomes a cautionary tale, sort of not to take too much from the forest, and you get that with um, Papa Boar in, in the uh, in the Caribbean as well. Mm. That sense that you you're allowed a certain amount of resources, but then anything beyond that just becomes greed, and would obviously potentially unbalance the 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 the, well, the balance, I guess, of the forest and the ecosystem. So these characters then become a, a, a sort of form of checks and balances, and I think that when you get them in in some of these countries particularly in, when you get them in places like the caribbean they're such a good reminder of obviously times when you know people have turned up in these places and not adhered to those particular um boundaries as it were but then the fact that you do get them in europe as well just goes to show that there's clearly been times when you know people in general have just kind of taken more than they should i mean look at the fact that you know we go back to robin hood Obviously, Sherwood Forest is a mere shadow of its form myself when you consider how big it would have been. Um, so I, I, I do think that all of them can kind of offer that sort of, you know, idea of like, you know, not to take more than than your fair share, as it were. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the, there are various nature spirits, I guess, who kind of serve a similar purpose as well. You've you've cited quite a few examples there that have come from different places around the world so the caribbean you know when we're looking at water spirits like like jenny green teeth then obviously you've got things like mummy water who we we've covered on the podcast before as well um from africa so is it the case that when we look at different cultures around the world and the kind of rebel characters that they have within their myths and their legends and their folklore that 
different cultures have very specific themes to their culture with these sorts of characters. Uh, is that meaning different within pockets of culture? Or do you find that actually it's broader than that and there's a whole mix of stuff in all different cultures? I think it's interesting that some some of the figures we, we came across did seem very much to be quite regional specific and it's because they're based on like a, either a geographical context or something like the Botuan Cantado from the Amazon is based very much upon the river dolphins so that story wouldn't make sense without the river dolphins and the Botuan Cantado in some ways is kind of painted as this quite playful almost jovial like cheeky chappy sort of figure of this dolphin who can take human form on land and has a bit of an eye for the ladies, shall we say. <laughs> and you can always tell him by the fact that he can't disguise his blowhole, so he would have to wear a hat to hide it. And some of the articles I came across online painted him as being like, I suppose, he would have essentially been a bit like Joey from Friends, <laughs> the way that he's kind of um, yeah. portrayed. But then when you dig that little bit deeper, and there was uh, some really interesting articles um that uh, that I found where they were talking about the fact that actually, like at a, at a deeper level, the Botuan Cantado then gets used as a cover for um, sort of much darker issues, particularly among the family, that relate to things like unexplained pregnancies, uh, where they can be explained. It's just it's easier to say, oh, it must be the child of the Botuan Cantado rather than facing the the reality of it. But then there's also a third layer that. The, the the human form that um that this figure takes is usually uh, or is often that of a white man so again it's then got um further layers to it about the idea of obviously beware and strangers who come into your community and you know again do they have good intentions um so that was a very very specific one but then you get something like the bird maidens of Oceania which are very very similar to the selkies and the swan maidens of Ireland and it's this idea of these women who can take the form of an animal or bird, and then when they take their skin off, they become a, hu a beautiful human. And you know, ne'er do wells would often steal their skin and force them into marriage. So those ones, because they appear in so many different cultures with so many different as uh, birds in particular, but then the selkies as well. Um, again, it just kind of speaks to some sort of universality because it's really unlikely that the people in Iceland who came up with the selkie stories would have known about they possibly would have known about the swan maidens of Ireland, but there's no way they would have known about like the cassowaries of Papua New Guinea, you know. So it's mm. kind of there's obviously something there in the human collective unconscious, I guess, um, that the behaviour is really, really similar. And I think, you know, some people have pointed out that the the bird women in particular are often depicted as like really docile and really compliant. And it's almost like a male fantasy of what they think women should be. And I think that's possibly the case with the Selkies as well, which is why male Selkies are very, very different and actually mm -hmm. quite a lot more uh, interesting, I think. Um, they seem to understand the concept of consent in a way that the, uh, the, the men relating to the female Selkies don't. So I do think when you get these commonalities among the, the figures that they do then make you think that some of them probably do come from a root of a shared human experience. Mm. Um, and then other ones, as I say, they, they're so much a product of their, their culture or their geography. That's a really interesting point because 
uh, a lot of areas of psychology have have now started to really kind of dismiss the whole Jungian hypothesis and the idea of folk memory or this this shared subconscious, the collective unconscious, however you want to term it. But as folklorists, I'm not convinced that we're as quick to dismiss that as an idea because, uh, and it's very difficult to use the term evidence within folklore in the quite the same way that, that other scientific disciplines would use the term evidence. But anecdotally, at least, there's a lot within folklore to support that hypothesis of a of a folk memory of a shared subconsciousness, isn't there? Would you agree? There is. Um, and I think there's also an, a third possibility, which sort of, in my mind, kind of sits between the two. And um, Munya Andrews puts this forward in her book about the Pleiades and their various myths, because what's really interesting about them is pretty much every um, continent has their own myth related to the Pleiades, but they're really, really similar. And in, in some cases, they're almost exactly the same. But these are cultures that basically have very little or had very little contact with each other. And she makes a really good argument that um, it's entirely possible that they do originally come from the same route and they're actually carried via migration. And people then sort of put their own spin on them, which explains the slight differences, but that actually humans have carried these stories from a collective. It's just they've literally done it through mm. um sort of travel and so on and i think that's where it's really interesting um with that idea if you know the story with the the blacksmith and the devil yes and that people have, yeah i love that one i think you mentioned it in the the welsh book don't you yes uh, and it's a great example because it, it's it's traceable back to being one of the earliest kind of stories that that, that do spread in that way isn't it yeah yeah so i sort of feel like because we've got examples of that is it possible that these other stories, um, I mean, it's possible they might come from a collective unconscious. It's possible that they might come from migration. I mean, there is obviously the other po possibility that we generally don't truck with, and that's that they're actually real. And you, think, you know, they could be really similar because this is people's actual experience with these beings or or however you want to term them. Um, but I think that idea that people like literally carry the stories with them and they become like part of, people's cultural um collective unconscious rather than like a literal collective unconscious mm. and when you think of how stories are so sticky and the, um, for good or ill and the fact that they do kind of get passed down be it through families through societies or whatever so i sort of think i mean i guess it's that thing what is it you know that like you know when a a lie gets out of bed and it's halfway around the world by the time the truth's got his shoes on yes, or something like yeah. that. So I do yeah. kind of feel like because we're naturally tend towards story, it would make sense that if a people was going to move from one area to another, the main the, the one of the things it would take would be the thing that doesn't weigh anything, and that's the story. So yeah. that might help to explain it as well. Belief belief is a tricky subject to navigate because you know what what we see as being a, a slightly or or even wildly ridiculous story from one culture is that culture's belief for very good reasons uh, and belief is very different, isn't it, from from place to place? So, yeah, it's difficult to navigate. Another thing that's difficult to navigate. I want to come back to this point about migration that you're making in just a second. But I also want to pick up on something that you said a little bit earlier on. Um, 
and it is a difficult subject to navigate um but i feel we need to do it and that's um the idea of things like colonialism um uh racial issues these kinds of ideas having an influence on the development of some of these rebellious characters um you know the idea of that i mean there there are male female issues there are black white issues there there are migratory issues how big a a part do some of these issues play in the development of some of these rebellious characters within folklore do you think i think it depends on the figure um although i think even then i mean i, I will look at two completely different um examples and mm. one would be lorelei of the rain there are different variations of the story that explain this figure who allegedly sat on the rock, uh, on the rain, the, Laure the Lorelei rock, and sang and would um, lure ships too close and they would, they would have problems on the river. Some of the stories have her down as just a water spirit. Some of them have her down as being like a fallen woman. And then obviously some of them involve the clergy and so on. And there's obviously something to be said for looking at the different versions and comparing them and then being like, right, okay, well, this one paints her as this like brazen hussy for want of a better word and she's put in her place by a, a, a noble clergyman who doesn't fall for her charms clearly that's some kind of propaganda if i can use the word for um ecclesiastical purposes um to kind of be like look you know we're, we're stronger than these wanton female spirits we've tamed nature um but then other ones, because they're kind of, there's a couple of stories which actually are quite sympathetic to Lorelei, and that's why she made it in the book, because she isn't just one thing or another. And some of them, she's actually treated really badly. And and then you sort of look at those ones and think, well, what was the context that produced those? Because they acknowledged the lesser status that women, I mean, in a lot of places in the world, still have to endure today, but particularly in Europe, the, the lack of power and agency that women would have had. So we've got her on one hand of the one sort of end of the spectrum, but then someone like Anansi at the other, and Anansi is absolutely fabulous. And you've got all of his stories of him as this like great spider trickster in West Africa. And then he ends up in the Caribbean and then in the Southern States of America. And you have to acknowledge the only reason he would make that journey is because people took him, but people didn't take him because they wanted to travel. You know, you have to then reconcile that with the fact that that was as a direct result of the transatlantic slave trade. So in a way, I think that the the way stories move or change um, or relate to their context, um, sometimes it reflects the time in which the story was retold. I mean, look at all the different ways that like King Arthur has been changed depending on the, the society that's, that's recasting him. But then obviously with someone like Anansi, I think he's really important, A, for his actual stories and his um, his meaning within in, in his culture, but also what people who are not of that culture can learn about almost like what was perpetuated. Um, so I think he, he's a really interesting... And of course, because he then ends up still 
getting one over on people no matter where he goes. He, 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 and I mean, at one point he ends up being cast as the very first Spider-Man, which I thought was absolutely marvellous. <laughs> um, and I really like that because you go, yeah, actually there is quite a lot of that sort of um, almost like prankster energy to mm. Spider-Man. So that, that would make a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's where you can then kind of see by looking at how the stories move or just how they change, what they then say about the the people who are essentially passing them on and writing them down. Maybe we need to write a book about um, folklore in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be something, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It would. And, and there are great examples, and there are lots of great examples of it too. But but there are lots of great examples of it, and I, I love the idea of Anansi as as the first Spider Man. I think that would be that would be great. Although. Um, Tricky casting for Tom Holland, possibly. Um, there's one other migratory tale which which you mentioned in the book, and that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, and it's been talked about on other podcasts recently as well. So we'll, we'll give a shout out at this point to uh, to Aaron Bobbick from the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, who has recently been talking about Jack Tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jack Tales are another example of stories that spread from Britain to the Appalachian regions, um, but but not in the same way necessarily as colonial issues affect some other um, rebel characters within folklore. So, so talk a little bit about the difference with Jack Tales. The Jack Tales are fascinating, and I hadn't realised, like, because when I interviewed um, Ed Karshner when he was on Fabulous Folklore, he was obviously talking about them as well, and I think he's talked about them with Aaron. Yeah. And I totally didn't cotton on that they were the same as like Jack and the Beanstalk and all those kind of stories that obviously we've had. And I, I just kind of in my head for some weird reason had them as two separate things. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about Jack by comparison is because he's a little bit more of an everyman figure. Um, He sort of, he's really interesting because he's a little bit different in the stories, but generally speaking, he's kind of this just ordinary bloke who ends and wanders into an extraordinary situation and then just has to deal with it. And because of the fact that those stories, um, as I think as Christine Pavisic said, um, it's likely that obviously people took them from the British Isles to America when they were just moving, when they were migrating there. So it's obviously a very different reasoning than the Anansi stories. Um, and I think Jack, in a in a different way, you wouldn't you'd never call him a trickster or anything like that. He's not rebellious in the sense that he doesn't like necessarily stand up to the system. It's more the way that he ends up in these like I'm trying to think if there's an example from pop culture, and I can't think of one off the top of my head, but he just kind of ends up in these almost extraordinary circumstances or situations. Mm. That he's then got, he's a bit like MacGyver, I guess, that he's then got to like think his way out of. Although I don't remember him ever like turning a concrete mixer into a microlight or anything. But it is that sense of like, what has he got to hand? And he just has to kind of get on with it. And I think mm. the Jack Tales are really interesting because he becomes almost quite a positive role model with that kind of sense of like a can do attitude and problem solving. And like, he doesn't complain, he just gets on with it. And and I think so. Jack's a really interesting one. I remember Ed telling me um, when I spoke to him that a lot of people have these like Jack tales in their family histories where they're like, they're sure it was like it happened to an aunt or a grandparent or, you know, a great uncle or whatever. And they absolutely swear down that it happened. Mm-hmm. 
but it's actually so that in a way they almost kind of blur the line with urban legends as yeah, well. Yeah, there is crossover, isn't there, between mm. the two? Between and um, Jack Tales are almost like uh, early urban legends in some respects. Yeah. Yeah, but they're just not necessarily as horrific for Jack himself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he he normally comes out of them pretty much unscathed at the end of the day. Uh, certainly can't say that happens in a lot of urban legends. Um, yeah, no. you know. Okay, there's um, a lot of examples uh, as you work way through the book. With who who are obviously rebels? You know, the trickster characters like Nancy. You've mentioned a few of them. You know, the Banshee, Baba Yaga, these sorts of characters. There are some characters um, who you discuss, who are, and I'm going to pick up on two, who are perhaps a little bit more surprising that they're classed in this way. And I'd, I'd like you to just highlight a little bit why these characters are in the whole um, sort of subset of, of rebels within folklore, if you like, because I don't think that people would necessarily think of them that way. Um, and one of them is Scheherazade. Mm. Who, now, Scheherazade to a lot of people is um, just a storyteller. Um, uh, but there are other aspects as well, aren't there? How did Scheherazade make the list? Um I mean, first of all, big fan. Um, <laughs> and I think it's 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 not so much the fact she's a storyteller, it's her motivation. And this is a big part of what makes a lot of them rebels. It's the motivation. She very much takes on the supreme source of power in her in where she lives. Like and she kind of steps forward and puts herself forward um to sort of end this almost like tyrannical sort of like like not rain but like you know practice of you know of all these poor women losing their lives and she's obviously got a plan so in a way she kind of fits in with a lot of the characters who think their way out of problems uh which you know we see with again with, with figures like nancy and it's the way that she slowly persuades the sultan um that he, he, he there is another way so not necessarily that he was wrong but she gets him to see life from a different perspective. So she's very rebellious. I, th- I would say she's rebellious in the sense that, like, A, she takes on the Sultan, but B, it's the fact that she does it in such a really quiet um, and persuasive way that mm. she kind of helps him to change his own mind just with, through the, the very dint of her storytelling. And I know a lot of the the, the um, stuff that I read um, for doing this profile because I really wanted to do her a lot of justice because she is such an absolutely fabulous figure and i know she's quite a figure of empowerment for for quite a lot of people even now and people are like oh but quite a lot of the the, the stories are quite misogynistic and so on and someone made the really excellent point that they kind of have to be at first because if she'd gone straight in with oh you're wrong and like women are amazing you would have just gone that next because it, it it was it was too much cognitive dissonance, but because she kind of starts him off with stories where he's like, yes, I agree with that, and then she slowly starts to change the nature of the the women and the female characters in the stories, he can then start to go, well, hang on a minute, she's awesome, and she's telling me these stories, so actually perhaps it's a very... Um, I would say she broadens his perspectives rather than getting it change his mind per se, because he's then got his own agency to actually change his mind as well. And I just think that's why she ended up in there 
because it's the the method of the way that she does it and i think that we could probably learn quite a lot from her now yes yeah it's, it's that idea of sneaking things is isn't it I've, i have a new term for this actually because I, I was chatting the other day to lally Macbeth from the the folk archive we were talking about how how we both do talks where we're talking to like fairly groups who who don't deal with folklore like history societies and things like that about things that interest them and then suddenly we make all these ties to folklore so we've turned this stealth folklore now and it's this <laughs> idea of worming folklore into everything because it's there anyway and it's just mm. highlighting that to people and that, that's kind of the case with with what Scheherazade does is is, mm. is a kind of stealth um stealth moral storytelling isn't it at the end of the day which is great of course the other difference with her to most of the other characters in the book excepting well robin hood i suppose uh, and maybe one or two others is um that they're human beings Hmm. Uh, and most of most of the rebels within these kind of cultural stories are not they're something else they're they're other they're different they're not ordinary mortal humans like that yeah, the other one that I'd like you to talk about, because I know that it's um, a character who you particularly like, so we, we ought to do that justice. And also it's a surprising character to come in into this collection in many ways, because we normally talk about this character in very different ways, is the Bell Witch. So oh. it, it, explain for those that don't know um the story of the bell witch which is an american an american tale uh, and and other than the fact that the bell witch is a great character what what puts puts the bell witch into this particular category the bell witch absolutely fascinates me because it's this it's generally portrayed as one of the us's like probably most famous hauntings um if we exclude something like amityville and I think it's basically this story where this family, um, uh, I'm sure they've moved to the farmhouse and they start experiencing what we would probably recognise as like poltergeist activity. Mm. And what's really unusual about it is the fact that it sort of focuses on certain members of the family. So the the 11-year-old girl, uh, daughter Betsy, she comes in for quite a lot of... Um, attention in a really negative way whereas the mother of the family the the whatever it is seems to like really take quite a shine to her and like looks after her when she's ill and stuff and i think even sings to her at one point which depending on the singing could be amazing or really annoying i guess it would <laughs> vary and then like it even then isn't a sort of questions of like doctrinal import with one of the family sons as well so it's like having these like debates about religion and what have you with one of the family sons and it and I, I, it even ended up sort of driving a wedge between Betsy when she's a bit older and her intended because he he I think he then uh, leaves and and so on so she ends up not marrying him and it all and then there's a cave associated with the story as well where the the, the witch was supposedly um, that was kind of her lair and I I have seen people doing ghost hunts and things in there but i'm sure it's full of like poisonous spiders or something so it's not somewhere that you'd necessarily want to spend a huge amount of time and it the whole story is particularly bizarre because it just kind of stops and the witch kind of promises to come back after a certain period of time and um and the sort of i, I don't know if the descendants are still waiting for another an- another reappearance or not 
But what was really interesting about it is even though it's depicted as a haunting, and this is the reason why I wanted to put the Bell Witch in there, is at no point is witchcraft really mentioned mm. in the sense that, like, obviously we understand, and, and, and at the time they would have understood witchcraft to mean a, a fairly specific thing, and at no point does that actually happen. Oh, I forgot the... um because the family patriarch ends up dying from what is sort of suspected. A couple of people think it might be, um, I want to say, arsenic poisoning. Um, but considering the 19th century, arsenic was in like literally everything. Yeah. But they actually found a file of uh, of liquid um, beside his bed that I think they then fed to the cat and it killed the cat. And um, so obviously there was this belief that the Bell Witch had, had killed the family patriarch. Um but what's really interesting is when you look at the actual stuff that the Bell Witch did, bits of it fit in with the poltergeist with all the activity. However, if you look at things like it helping around the house, that then starts taking it off more into brownie territory. And I don't imagine many poltergeists that would sit and debate the Bible with someone. They're not usually given a huge amount of conversational ability in a lot of the stories. Yes, um, Jeff the Mongoose. It's the only, the only poltergeist I can think of that would debate stuff. Yeah, but then like, would, would Jeff look after someone when they were sick? Well, I, I, I think if it was worry, he probably would. But at the same time, he'd be very arrogant about it. And, th- and this is the thing, and I think because the whatever it is re- relates to different, and some of the members of the family, it seems to just completely ignore entirely. And obviously the, the main focus of its eye seems to be Betsy and the father. Um, you know, I mean, there's even been um, sort of theories about, obviously, was it a person? You know, was it like if with like ventriloquist abilities? Uh, you know, was it a poltergeist? And then obviously did it leave because Betsy, obviously being 11 and therefore like the right age for these kind of things, like did she just grow out of it? Um, and But uh, the more I looked at it, the more I kind of thought there's a little bit of slippage here because some of the things it could do, like it could recite the words of a sermon that while it was happening that was actually happening 12 miles away. Mm. And that ability to be in two places at once, yes, I can imagine something supernatural would have. But again, that feels more fairy-like to me in the kind of party trick sort of thing. Um, so I kind of felt that the Bell Witch belonged to be in there because it's almost like who the Bell Witch is is kind of irrelevant. Because obviously some people thought it was the ghost of this neighbour who hated John Bell. Um, and it claims to be the spirit of the woods at one point. So it then gives different identities as to who it is, and it did. It, it, and then you think, my God, if it is a spirit of the woods, are we now going into the realm of land spirits, which obviously has a very different connotation in the United States than it would somewhere like Britain? Yeah. So it's yeah. it's just such an ambiguous story, and it's there's so much to it that could be read in multiple ways. Um, I think that's why I wanted to put that in there because. It defies that categorization. Mm. Yeah, some of them do that, and it is a great story, um, and it does have interesting parallels with other poltergeist cases. I think, yeah, there's been some good stuff written on the Bell Witch, but but um, I think there's there's always room to room for more on on topics like that for sure. Um, so we've covered quite a few, and the, there are certainly a lot more in the book than we could hope to cover uh on one podcast episode and and anyway people wouldn't want to buy the book if we talked about all of them let's be honest um so let me ask you this out of all the characters that that you term rebels and include in your book um 
who's on your bucket list of characters that you'd really like to meet on a Friday night? Um, and then the flip side of that, I suppose, is who would you definitely not want to? Um, it's a difficult one because obviously, like my absolute favourites are the psycho pumps. I've loved psycho pumps for years, but I wouldn't want to meet one on a Saturday night because that would kind of imply something fairly. You're not like, going to make it to the Sunday, are you? Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess really, out of all of them, uh, I would if I was going to if I was going to say I'd like to meet one of the ones that's in the book, I would possibly go for Jack because I feel like that you'd be quite safe then, mm. um, or potentially. Um, possibly the Pleiades, because um, obviously as I'm so fascinated by like star lore and sort of like legends of the constellations and things, they would be quite interesting. Um, and I feel like, again, you would probably be, you, you, you wouldn't have to fear for your, your safety around them, um, which is quite helpful. Or obviously um, Shahrazad as well. She would be an absolute cracking person to hang out with, I think, on of an evening. Um, in terms of who I wouldn't want to, Ooh. it's funny because a lot of the the more vicious ones if i can say that i wouldn't really be a problem with because of the fact that they're more vicious towards men so i'm yeah. kind of fine <laughs> with a lot of them um i i actually would probably say robin hood because i imagine he'd probably be quite insufferable <laughs> oh yeah yeah he's gonna go on isn't he let's be honest <laughs> Let me just tell you the story of when I... No, don't. Really don't. But, but, <laughs> unless it was the Disney Robin Hood, in which, and I do mean the Fox version, that I yes. think he's all right. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, not or or Maid Marian and her Merry Men, the, the Tony Robin vehicle. That, that, would, <laughs> that would be worth it too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, let, let's bring this up to date. Uh, lots of these stories uh, are very traditional. Um, they've been around for a long time in different cultures. And there is this common misconception that a lot of people have about folklore, that it's just that old stuff, you know, which it, we know it isn't. Um, so do we still find these kinds of rebel characters within folklore coming up in more modern folklore, do you think? Have we got examples of that sort of thing? I can't help thinking that some of them have migrated over to the urban legend um, mm. instead. And obviously some of the figures, like sort of like a, a more recent one being someone like Slenderman, is kind of unremittingly bad, so wouldn't fit into something like that. Um, but I guess it's it's a difficult one because of the fact that because there's that distinction drawn. Um, but I do think because there's been sort of a, a bit of a resurgence of interest in fairy law beyond the cutesy living in the garden wanting to grant wishes and everything for you because people are starting to move back the other way again i feel like there's there's probably space for them mm. um within uh with, and i actually think the other one and this is a weird one because there have been i say sightings um but kind of yeah at mermaids um, because obviously they've they've become really popular in popular culture for obviously yeah. various reasons. Um, but as I say, I'm sure there was actually a sighting of one, and it was in the 21st century. It was believed to have been spotted on a beach. So I think that some of them do sort of break back through here. And obviously, like Yamanja and, and Mammy Water in particular, who are both in the book, obviously continue to have people who uh, work with them, uh, particularly Yamanja, um, you know, like on a, on a regular basis. Um 
and because there were other figures who could have potentially gone in there but i didn't i didn't want to put them in if they were like linked with like religious um beliefs or someone like santa muerte or someone like that um because i know she's she's interesting but as a a folk saint she kind of occupies a different space but yeah, I, I would say I would say mermaids would be a, a good one because to me they are kind of the height of ambiguity, um, and if we take away the fact that people keep confusing them with sirens, I think that there's if you looked at a figure like I know if, again it's a it's a story from antiquity, well not antiquity, it was just a, a, an older story like the Mermaid of Zena, mm. um, you know mermaids the, the the stories appear literally all over the world, um, and you can often read them multiple ways. So I feel like that that would be the more modern equivalent. Yeah, yeah. And there are there are these modern examples. You're absolutely right. I mean, we covered mermaids way back when in like season two or something like that on the podcast. And there are lots of examples. Okay. Um we should wrap up, but before we do, I do want to go back and um just get you to talk a little bit about the artwork in this book because so often with books People talk to the authors and they talk about the contents of the books and they completely overlook the fact that, the, that a lot of books have an illustrator as well. And poor old illustrators, they get short shrift quite often with these sorts of things. Um, and I, I don't think that that's right. And, and certainly we, we need to... Um, to talk about the, the illustrations in this book. So Melissa Jarum is the illustrator of, of this book. And... The artwork is really kind of good, isn't it, at drawing on the traditional kind of representations of a lot of these characters. So even though the artwork has a a, a common style that runs throughout the book, you really get that cultural sense of identity with all of these characters. Um, talk a little bit about, about the art in this book. I mean, I think Melissa's done an absolutely fabulous job of obviously interpreting sort of the... It's a combination of the way that traditionally these figures have been represented. Because obviously a figure like, say, Baba Yaga, there's quite a lot of stuff's already been done about Baba Yaga. So there's quite a lot of cultural touch points to draw on. But then how do you put your own spin on that to then come up with something sort of new? And I think Melissa did a really good job of balancing how these figures had already been um, represented. I want to say, I'm going to say by the mainstream, and I just mean as in over a period of time in traditional sources, but then also how people were reimagining these figures for themselves in much more contemporary sources. And sort of Melissa kind of like sort of looked at those as inspiration, but then took from obviously how we'd actually described because um, obviously me and, and, and the editor would sort of like pull together a list of like common iconography, for example, from um, the stuff that I'd written. Um, and then it was kind of like, how do you um, envisage these things? And I think, as I say, Melissa's done an absolutely fabulous job. And I remember when I got the book and I was looking through going, oh, my God, that one's my favourite. Cut the pages on. No, that one's my favourite. <laughs> and uh, it's really hard to actually. And I think I love the way that she's depicted Robin Hood as a much more... Um, sort of a gender fluid character i think mm. um particularly because i did take into account the likes of maid marion uh, which i was very pleased to see um but i think that it was um 
Possi- possibly the one of the Barong might be my favourite. I think he was one of my favourite characters in the book anyway. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But Shahaz sort of really captured enough that if you wanted to kind of decode the images, you would learn quite a lot about the character just purely on what's been included, which is really, really unusual, I think, um, that you can sort of in- in- learn from the images as much as from the text. So Rebel Folklore, it's published by Dorling Kindersley. It's a, it's a large format hardback, beautifully presented, as you would expect from Dorling Kindersley, heavily illustrated throughout, uh, and yet absolutely full of wonderful folklore content, uh, including very, very useful reading lists and podcast lists. Thank you very much for including my podcast in the back of your book. I was going to say, I did put you in there, didn't you I? You did, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and uh, a handy pronunciation guide, which I know the publishers were keen to put in, which was also very, very useful. Uh, It's available from all good bookshops, probably a number of bad ones as well. Certainly try and buy it from your independent bookshop if you are able to do so. Icy, is always an absolute pleasure to have you anywhere near my podcast. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about Rebels Within Folklore. What's next for you these days then? Uh, other than finally finishing my PhD, um, that's taken a complete different turn. So that's uh, actually quite exciting, to be fair. Um, and then after that, I've got a couple of um, book proposals um, that I need to put together for another publisher. Um, and I joked about this on Twitter a while ago because it became a running joke for a good like three months on Fabulous Folklore that there was love divination in pretty much every episode. <laughs> um, so I, re- I really want to do... Um, something on like love spells and love divination and some of the like some of the easy to do ones versus some of the you need a corpse for this one kind of uh, <laughs> kind of end of the spectrum um and then like my absolute like close to my heart thing other than ghosts is water folklore um so i'm going to be doing um some stuff on water folklore and Speaking of ghosts, um, eventually we're going to do something as well. Yes, we are. Uh, so Icy and I are going to put our collective heads together and and put together an online event jointly hosted between myself and Icy's Fabulous Folklore podcast uh, in a format yet to be decided, probably uh, a weekend online conference style event where we will have a, a number of speakers and authors and other people associated with the subject who will just talk all things ghosts for the entire weekend. And we can all get together and chat and have a Q&A session and do all the fun things that we do at our online events. So, yes, that will be a thing, won't it? It will. That's definitely happening because like, we've already been thinking of people. We have. We have. So more on that soon. In the meantime, uh, links to Icy's podcast and writing and other things on the Folklore Podcast website for this episode. As usual, Icy, thank you so much for taking the time. My absolute pleasure. My thanks to Icy for her valuable insight into the role of the rebel in folklore, myth and legend. If you want to experience more of these stories and marvel at the beautiful illustrations that we alluded to in this interview then seek out a copy of Rebel Folklore from your favourite bookstore or local library. You won't be disappointed. I've been doing a number of talks recently, based on my last two books on the folklore of Devon and Welsh ghosts, as well as other live events. I've been recording many of these, and I'm releasing a number of recordings to our supporters on Patreon over the coming months. You won't be able to hear these recordings anywhere else, 
So, if you'd like to have a listen, as well as getting access to many other pieces of bonus material, and, more importantly, helping to support the podcast in keeping going, then please visit our Patreon page and sign up. Access starts at just a pound a month. That's about the price of a bar of chocolate. So, please your dentist and support our work at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thank you. We've built up a significant backlog of interviews and other podcast episodes over the last few months, and, for various real-life reasons, these haven't been released as frequently as I would have liked. We've kept material coming, but I'm hoping to ramp up our episode output for the rest of the year to bring some more of these to you so keep watching your feeds. Finally, our project to launch a new show reading old and obscure folklore books and materials is taking shape. The show is going to be called Stories from the Hearth, and it's being spearheaded by Tracy Nicholas. If you registered interest in being a narrator, then you should have had an email for a catch-up. If you'd like to read a story, or just want to find out more, then you can contact Tracy at folklorepodreaders.com at gmail.com. There'll be more news about this project soon, as well as a new e-newsletter with information about more of our upcoming projects and developments. If you don't already, join our mailing list on the Folklore Podcast website. We won't bombard you, we only send out newsletters very infrequently, but you will get more in-depth news that way. I'll be back soon to introduce the next episode of the podcast with a guest who is a legend in his own lifetime. Thanks for listening. See you next time.